This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. We have a problem. (laughs) Peter talks about the flood of Noah's time as a fact, not an idea. Not a misunderstanding, not just a spiritual thought, a fact. But many people, including many Christians, talk about a worldwide flood as if it were a silly children's fairy tale. And it doesn't get any easier when you look at Scripture. There's no out when it comes to the flood of Noah's time. Every Christmas we are reminded that Luke wrote a complete genealogy of the human lineage of Jesus, going back to Adam and including Noah, since all the figures in the genealogy close to Jesus are known to be historical, what are we to do with the earlier names? Now, we can go back to David with confidence, uh, biblically, of course, but archaeologically, David lived. We're sure of Boaz and Perez. We can't cut it off at Jacob, and certainly not Abraham. But if Noah didn't exist, it has to be fantasy. So where do you decide that it changes from history to fantasy if the flood is nothing but a fairy tale? Do you remember the Hall of Fame of Faith? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. They didn't listen to Noah, so they were condemned. The writer, this writer, clearly believed Noah to be a real person, and the flood to be a fact. Luke clearly thought Noah to be a historical figure, and so did Jesus. He said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus affirmed the historicity of Noah and of the flood, using it to illustrate the complete regeneration of the world that he will do at the end of this age. Jesus' statement, as well as the text in Genesis, means the idea that it was just a local flood can be dismissed. Besides, why would God make Noah go through the charade of saving two of every animal kind if they were surely safe someplace else, if this was a local flood? This is certainly is not just a spiritual lesson. So we have a problem. If it is true that there really was a man named Noah who really built an ark of immense proportions which really did float on waters that covered all the land of the earth, then what are we to do with those who say that this flood story is nothing but a fairy tale? A fable. 
What do we say to those who scoff at this idea? And let me say it blatantly. Does science prove that the Bible is really a bunch of fairy tales? Well, at least this story is. Which would make us question every story, yes? Today we're doing something a little different than our normal Sunday morning. (laughs) We normally simply accept that the Bible is true. (laughs) Talk about it. Today, rather than learn what Scripture is teaching us so much, we're going to go ahead and defend the Scripture. Peter did say to us, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He goes on to say, Yet do it with gentleness and respect. (laughs) And we shall attempt to do that. And this is, by the way, a difficult task in that nothing, nothing is attacked like the early history the scriptures say is true. And the viciousness of the attacks is dramatic. Before I became a pastor, I spent many years going around doing talks like this. And I've been called stupid to my face. I've been called an idiot. I've been called uneducated, etc. Because I contend that this story is true. Just as the scriptures say. Uh, People have lost their jobs because they stood for this truth. You should watch the movie Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. It is entertaining. But it's informative and frightening. But as we defend the sacred text, we will do our best to display Christ. Even as we discuss the science of the scriptures and why others are wrong. (laughs) The main three areas that people struggle with as to the possibility of the Noahican flood. The ark and all that's associated with it. What's that look like? The animal kinds. There's a lot of questions there. And the geology that would be caused by the flood. There is a fourth item that, that is rarely considered, but should be. That is culture, history. Alright, the ark. The ark seems impossible to people on a few fronts. How could it survive such a large flood? <laughs> uh, no one else had, until recently, ever built a vessel even close to this size out of wood that actually floated, uh, how could Noah and his family, the government of Hong Kong, this will interest you, has funded the construction of just such a thing, and it works. So they're using it today. It's used as a tourist attraction. It even has a complete movie about Jesus and his relationship to the ark, including his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, how about that for a government subject to a communist regime? Isn't that amazing? (laughs) But here's a good question. How could only eight people manage it? And is even its immense size sufficient? Which brings us to the second point. How many animals would it have to hold? Uh, What would you do for food? What would you do with that leftover after the food is uh, well processed? (laughs) Got that uh, area to deal with. These are real and legitimate questions, and we we should have answers for them, or at least know where to look for the answers. Now, it used to be that science, uh, the idea of the whole world being covered with water at once, that was thought impossible. That's actually no longer the case. Uh, But we still have to look at, at a problem. Do we see what we would expect to see in geology if the world was, in fact, covered by a flood? The whole world. Do we see that in the geology? 
And the last, do we see in cultures a memory of a worldwide flood with only a small number of people escaping its effect? And to make it tougher, is this sort of story universal? Or at least widespread? It should be, if this really happened, as the scriptures say. Since we have so little time this morning, <laughs> we can only brief most of this and look at the basics of the ark and the animals on it. All right, let's get an, inter- an overview. The storm was brought by God himself and would destroy every land-dwelling creature that breathed through his nostrils, as the scripture says. The rain was continuous for 40 full days. All right, you ready for a little humor? I don't know if any of you from around here in Tacoma about, oh man, was that about 15 years ago? Tacoma had rain every single day for, what was it, almost two months. Every single day we had measurable rain. It wasn't continuous, but every day. So this joke was going around. This woman moves to Tacoma for a new job, and she's so excited. And when they land, it's raining. Her work's already arranged for a place for her to stay, and when she gets there, it's raining. She's only a few blocks from work, so she decides to walk there in the morning. Uh, she goes out to lunch. It's raining. So it's just like it was in the morning. She walks home. It's raining. And this goes on for weeks. Uh, shopping. It's raining. Hair appointments, raining. Dentist, it's raining. It doesn't matter, it's always raining. Finally, a few days later, she's walking home in the rain. She sees this little boy coming towards her on the sidewalk. She says, hey, kid, does it ever stop raining around here? He says, how would I know, lady? I'm only six. <laughs> so, 40 days of continuous rain. And that seems to be what the scriptures indicate. Would certainly be a lot. And it appears that this is when the ark began to float. Now, you can imagine how very important to Noah and his family it was that the ark actually float. <laughs> yes, all that God had said was actually coming to pass. But when you are in this barge with a year's supply of everything that you need for yourself and thousands of animals, and the thousands of animals, you can imagine the relief <laughs> that you felt when the ship finally lifted off the forms on which they built it. You can almost feel their emotions in this next pair of scriptures as they looked out at the rising waters. The waters got higher and higher until everything you can see, everything you have ever known, is covered by water. The water keeps coming further and further up the side of the ark. You can hear the sides creaking. You can sense the enormous pressure the hull is enduring and that's building. And finally... When the water is less than 25 feet from the deck, you feel that ever so slight rolling of the ship. Oh, it worked. (laughs) Uh, We're actually floating on the surface of an endless sea. By the way, draft used to be measured from the deck down. It's now measured from the hull up. But back until actually about the 1600s, it was measured from the deck down. Anyway, they're floating and then they must have realized that Awful truth. No other person was alive. No cattle or other land-dwelling creatures like them was alive. No mammals, no reptiles, no birds except those on the ark. For months on end, anything living that isn't a bug or can swim (laughs) is on this ark with you. Wow. It's important to remember how, by the way, God started this flood. The Bible says the fountains of the great deep were broken up. What is the great deep? 
That's right. It's lava. Uh, there is no Hebrew word for lava uh, or volcano. So Moses used the best descriptor available to him. And this is critical to understanding the science of the flood. Almost certainly it was the heating of the oceans, perhaps as much as five degrees Fahrenheit. Michael Ord, a long-term climatologist with NASA, has a fascinating book on that if you want to. Anyway, which caused the increase in water vapor necessary for the rains to fall. Uh, the breaking up of the Earth's crustal plains precipitated the volcanic activity and explains much of the geology that we see today. I don't know if they saw any of this when the, this was happening, but I'm certain God kept them from colliding with any land masses as they rose from the water. Okay, let's move on and look at the timing of the worldwide flood. Okay. It happened approximately 4,300 years ago. Noah and his family had about 100 years to prepare. Uh, they took one week to load all the animals on the ark. The food had probably already been loaded earlier, and, and actually they probably used the ark as their warehouse. The ark floated for 150 days before settling on the mountains of Ararat. Not the Mount of Ararat, but the region of Ararat that contains only mountains. It's uh, over more than 10,000 square miles of area, so it's quite large. Then they looked out for a month and a half before sending out the birds. They waited two more weeks before they disembarked. So, they were in the ark a total of one year and ten days. One year and ten days in the ark. Wow. So, now we've got all that data. We're ready to defend the scriptures. So, let's take a very brief look at some facts that can help us to defend our faith. And there's no way, again, that I could possibly answer all the questions that might come up in the short time we have at all today. So, the ark, a brief overview. Let's illustrate the number one problem whenever we discuss this issue. Most of us have a ridiculous image of the ark shown to us when we were kids. Okay, The problem with a child's view of almost anything is that it won't work. <laughs> and such is the case here. The real ark was a barge, okay, a, a huge box. Uh, kind of a big warehouse that floated. Uh, some common items that might help you to understand the size are included for comparison, uh, including a silhouette of the largest dinosaur specimen ever discovered. I want you, though, to remember that fully grown land animals are mostly quite small. Only a handful of animals are actually larger than a sheep. The ark was made with specially processed wood, gopher wood. We think that's a process. Uh, we are s certain we don't have all of God's instructions to Noah, but we do have the salient points, including the size and the general construction layout. Uh, the window was not a single window, but probably something like that model shows where there's windows all the way across the top like that. The door size and location, don't know anything. We don't have a clue. And by the way, this model, again, uses full-grown adult animals to give you a concept of the size. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So how big was the ark? In cubits, yeah, thank you, not really helpful to me, English measurements are far better. Over a million and a half cubic feet. A million and a half cubic That's 522 railroad cars. More than enough to house 125,000 sheep. 
Now, one gentleman, when I studied this, who clearly did not believe and had obviously never read the Genesis account, granted that all the millions of species of living beings, and he included all the bugs and all the fish and all the amphibians and the whales, included everything, they'd all fit on the ark. But then he pointed out that there'd be no room left for all the food. So how would that work? It's a legitimate question. People do sometimes ask legitimate questions. If two of every kind is to come to Noah, how, how will he and his family fit them in the ark, let alone feed and care for them? Now, most people are surprised to find that only 2,000 animals would have been required on the ark, although most calculate about 8,000. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, how can that be? <laughs> okay, there are two issues. First is to ask what type of animals had to be on the ark. And it sounds even worse when God says to take seven, presumably seven pair, of each type of clean animal. But remember, there are no insects that had to be on the ark, nor anything that could swim. The second point to ask is what is meant by kind, and that's what we're starting to look at here. Uh, scientists have long recognized that God's statement that each animal will produce after its own kind is true. That's what DNA is all about. What this means is that all the horse kinds, zebras, donkeys, ponies, etc., all of them came from one horse pair. Uh, same for dogs, wolves, foxes, etc., and camels and llamas and alpacas are all the same. Uh, they can breed together to this day. Cats, from lions to tabbies, cats. It's hard for us to imagine that all these came from the same original pair, but the science of genetics has proven the Bible to be true. Big surprise, right? <laughs> the point is that it is not species in the modern sense that is the issue here, but something more inclusive. And now, we are brought to another curious question. What about dinosaurs? Uh, they must have been in the ark, if the entire story of Genesis is to believe, but would it work? Would they fit? Now first, understand that there weren't all that many dinosaur types. Nobody thinks more than 100. Uh, one scientist I've read says 42 general types of dinosaurs. They were mostly small. And it would be silly to bring a full-grown adult to it. Uh, young dinosaurs would be quite manageable in size. Uh, look at the size comparison in this drawing again. Somewhere in there, I lost a little thing about the footballs there to show you that they, uh, the biggest, largest dinosaur egg ever was the size of a football. Okay. The other point about reptiles, it's well known that reptiles grow continuously as long as the food supply is sufficient. So given a thousand years, an apatosaurus, also called a brontosaurus, could get that large, uh, given the abundant food sources that were then available. So a ten-year-old Apatosaurus would be no bigger than a cow. Pretty small. A lot of people worry to get on to the next subject. Sorry, we're going really really fast today. <laughs> uh, about the work that Noah and his family had to do. So we'll consider just one example. There are many. What do you do with all that waste? You know, that food, that, that waste that comes after the food is processed. Uh, John Woodmerap. Uh, spent seven years studying for and writing an amazing book called Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study. It's from a science view. You should read it. Uh, it answers hundreds of questions concerning the management of the ark. Now, he found two methods that are regularly used to manage just this issue we're talking about. Vermicomposting, that was, he thought, the most likely answer. Use worms. <laughs> and it would supply food for the birds. But simply using absorbent material and then shoveling it down ducts uh, to the bottom of the ship, that would have worked as well. 
there's there's so many really fun facts. <sighs> We've got to leave the ark behind. So let's consider the geology. Okay, some scientists, they think they have everything figured out. They even believe that they can create human beings. We can do that. So God shows up and challenges them. Let's grab some dirt. You make a human and I'll make one. Let's see who gets there first. So the scientist reached down to pick up some soil. Guess says, ah, you make your own dirt too. <laughs> you don't get to use his. And we'll go back to flood geology. The idea is pretty simple. If there was a worldwide flood, what would we expect to see in geology? Does what we actually see correspond to our expectations? And if there wasn't a worldwide flood, would the geology be what it is? So, let me pause here to answer a common objection. First, if the whole world was covered with water, where did it all go? As I said before, scientists no longer have a problem with the mountains being covered with water. After all, they've found marine fossils on every single mountain they have ever examined. Even at the very peak of Mount Everest, they've pulled out trilobites. Okay. Every mountain. The question is, where did all the water go that covered them all at once? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's still here. Okay, we all know that most of the surface of the earth is covered with water. And most of us vaguely remember that the oceans are deeper than the continents are tall. Now, obviously, if we absolutely smoothed out the earth, all the land, everything would be covered by water, obviously. Uh, the question is, how deep would that water be? Uh, would it shock you to find out that you would be right now standing under nearly two miles of water? Two miles of water. That's the average depth of the ocean. It's amazing. The question really should be, why is there any land at all? There shouldn't be, why is there more water? It should be, why is there any land at all? Anyway, we're back to our question. What should we find underground if there was a great flood? And Mount St. Helens may provide an answer. This canyon was formed by the Toodle River. It looks very much like other canyons in the world. For instance, the Grand Canyon, but has some dramatic differences. Before we get to the differences, I want you to note the layering that's evident in this photo. Again, just like we see all over the world. Now, before the canyon was carved, a huge landslide came down from the mountain. The landslide slid north from the volcano into the headwaters of the North Fork of the Tudor River Valley, and then it split into three parts. One part of the landslide slammed into Spirit Lake, which caused the waves to splash 225 to 275 meters up the surrounding ridge. That's a thousand feet. The wave was a thousand feet high. So that'll give you an idea of the size of the landslide. Another part of the landslide surged up and over the 400 meter tall uh, ridge, Johnson Ridge in the foreground. It's located eight miles due north of the volcano. This part of the landslide then slid down South Coldwater Creek. The rest, the final and the largest part of the landslide, was diverted uh, west by Johnson Ridge and slid 22 kilometers down the North Fork of the Toodle River. Within 10 minutes, 10 minutes, the landslide filled 22 kilometers of the North Fork Toodle River Valley with rock debris to an average depth of 45 meters in places that the, the deposit is 195 meters thick. That's over 600 feet thick. Ten minutes. 
So what's the difference between this and the vast number of valleys with layers in them? All of this, we watched. I lived in Vancouver, Washington, saw that. We watched it all on TV. We watched those layers being laid down in less than 10 minutes. And yet, there are layers. <laughs> layers. It all happened at once, and they're layered. In fact, the only time layers have been observed to form is when a major landslide occurs. Fjords in places as diverse as Norway and New Zealand, they've hosted such landslides. All of them formed in minutes, all of them carved back out in months, and all with layers, just like this. So why do people say layers in the ground take millions of years to form? Uh, we saw these form and then get carved out the next summer by the river. Why shouldn't we believe that the normal method of layer formation is a flood or other major catastrophe? Especially when you consider that oil companies track vast, thick layers that stretch from Pennsylvania to Denver. They cover millions of square miles. I know I sold some surface contour analysis software to oil companies. I know what these... It's amazing! What, other than a worldwide flood, could cause such a thing? Which brings us, new subject, to a favorite child of those who do not believe in a global flood, the global stratigraphic column. You see, they say the layers represent time. Start there, build up, 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 up. Uh, even though we have seen that the data doesn't support that conclusion. But if it was time, with evolutionary development of animal kinds, wouldn't we expect the fossils to follow a progression in the layers? But nowhere. Nowhere is it clearly evident. And in fact, only 1% of the animals are confined to a single layer. Only 1%. As one might expect if there was a global flood. And remember, nowhere in the world does such a column exist. And no current or known gradual process can create layers like we see. Only a major catastrophic deluge. And then shouldn't it be clear, if the vast time with gradual formation of layers story were true, wouldn't it be obvious? Why is there constant disagreement and change in the various estimates of ages within the layers? But more than anything else, and I, I think this is amazing, why does it look so pristine? The layers are beautifully clear. Where are the roots? And the signs of the worms or the moles or the clams are something living in that material. If it really was soil at one point in time or seafloor, why don't we see evidence of anything living in it? What is called by civil engineers, bioturbation. I think it may be because the layers aren't things that happened over millions of years, but because a global year-long catastrophic world-altering flood caused it. Now, I should point out, that there are some biological anomalies in the layers. There's a famous fossilized bush, it's a small tree, whose base is in a layer that's supposed to be 50,000 years older than the one that the tips of its branches are in. That's a bush that knows how to survive, 50,000 years. Well, its roots were in completely hardened material, solid rock, its branches were able to wait tens of thousands of years well, they got covered up by layer after layer of material, taking thousands of years for each one, and no bugs ate the plant, and no storms ruined it, and the sun didn't dry it out. Uh, <laughs> it's such an anomaly that they've given it a special name. It's called a polystrate fossil. 
a fossil that spans stratigraphic layers that it shouldn't be able to. And catch this, there are multiplied thousands of these. There's a clam tunnel that goes straight up 20,000 years of layers. That doesn't make sense. But don't worry. Scientists have solved the problem. They gave it a name. Polystrates. There. That's better. All solved. <laughs> oh, one more really interesting one. All over the face of the earth, there's evidence of meteors striking the surface of the earth, right? In the Precambrian layers, which pretty much all flood geologists believe is pre-flood, there are fossil craters all over the world. Found them everywhere. But in between, where hundreds of millions of years are supposed to have taken place, not a single meteor fossil has ever been found. Not one. So what? Meteors just stop hitting the earth for millions of years? How about instead all those layers were laid down in one worldwide flood that lasted about a year? <laughs> Whatever meteors did hit during that time probably were washed away if they even reached past the water. Okay, new subject. What about the people on the ark? If God had only three couples of childbearing age on the ark, would we expect to see some effect of this? Well, maybe not. But if we did, wouldn't that be interesting? It's fascinating that scientists do, in fact, categorize people physiologically into three main groups. According to the Bible, all the Asian peoples and the Jews descended from Shem. It's more than interesting that the word Ham actually means or came to mean dark or black. And Japheth means or came to mean light or white. Hmm. And the world is indeed populated by three people groups. Which brings us to the last point that we'll consider today. If there really was a worldwide flood that obliterated all land-dwelling animals, reptiles, and birds, including all people, wouldn't you expect to find some sort of story in every ancient society? And if there wasn't a worldwide flood, wouldn't you be surprised if you found the story in people groups throughout the world? And sure enough, Ask any anthropologist, every single ancient people group has a flood story. From the Aborigines to the Incas, from Asia to Africa. They all have and had stories of very small of a very small group of people surviving a flood that killed all other people. So are all these people lying? <laughs> How could they all come up with fairy tales that sound so eerily similar? Is it maybe possible that a worldwide flood did in fact occur? By the way, a missionary friend who worked with a people group of 175 people that had their own language in South America. And he casually said, their, their flood story is very interesting. And I said, what? He said, their flood story. Well, all of them have flood stories. And I said, 175 people? Yeah, he said, they have one completely unique. He said, it was very interesting how they worked it up. And yeah, even 175 people that survived with their own have floods. Everybody has floods. It's amazing. Well, what do we do with all this? Let's go back to Peter and listen to what he said next. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago 
And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that what then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Son of God, through Noah, warned the people before the flood that he was going to destroy the world. If they wanted to be saved from this death, all they had to do was join Noah on the ark. That's it. And the only way they could be saved was to join Noah on the ark. Jesus wants to warn people now that the end of this whole age is coming. And he wants to warn them through us. If they want to be saved from the day of judgment and destruction, then all they have to do is join us in the church. And the only way they can be saved is to join us in the church. This is often called the invisible church or the universal church. Only through the gift of Jesus Christ can they be saved. Around here we say they have to admit they are a sinner, believe that Jesus can and will save them, and commit their lives to him. But you'll hear some say, oh, you guys have been saying that forever. Like we're supposed to believe you after all this time. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God has a desirous will and a determinative will. He desires that none should perish. But he determines that there will be a time when their chance to join us is gone. God is oh so patient, but judgment day will come. And believe me, you want to say, hey, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. He paid the price for me. The flood happened a long time ago. God was very patient with those people. There was an end to his patience. The end will happen. God will do as he promised. But he is very patient, giving everyone a chance to repent and turn to him. But the day of the Lord will come. They won't expect it like a thief in the night. But when it does, everyone's work will be exposed. And the only hope we have is that our sins are forgiven in Christ. The church, you see, is the ark. Trust in Jesus Christ is what will bring us safely through that fiery storm. And we, we are Noah. <laughs> we are to be creatures of righteousness. Now true, if they will not listen, then our work, like Noah's, only condemns them. But if they do, we will be a part of saving a soul from eternal destruction. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What kind of people 
ought we to be? What is our future? <laughs> what can we promise to those we tell about Jesus? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Another thought about it. It must have been amazing for Noah and his family when they left the ark. Everything was new. It, it was a whole new world. And there was no one anywhere in the world to hurt them. There was no one anywhere in the world to lead them astray. Except for themselves and Satan. But in the future, we who are in the ark, the church of Jesus Christ, will be brought safely into a new heavens and a new earth. A really new world. Not just one that has been flooded, but one made, created new. And only righteousness will dwell there. There won't be anyone to lead us astray. Not even Satan or his demons. Not even us. So let's do the best we can to live here in this world that was new to Noah without spot or blemish and with the peace that goes beyond understanding until we finally are brought safe into a totally new world. Hmm. Let's pray.